0: Welcome to Behind the Smile with Ash Butters, a podcast designed to reveal the truth behind the masks we wear. Together, we look to demystify the human mind and its behaviours in relation to mental health, trauma and addiction. My name's Ash and I'll be your host as we uncover the real stories of people's pain and the steps they've taken to live a life of freedom in recovery. From sobriety to spirituality, Join me each week as we uncover the reasons why people seek recovery and how their lives have changed by living one day at a time. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Smile. Today's guest is Sarah Rusbatch. Sarah is a certified health and well-being coach, an accredited grey area drinking coach, a motivational speaker and a passionate ambassador for helping as many women as possible to live their best lives. Sarah made the decision to get sober in April 2019 and hasn't looked back. Since then, Sarah's sobriety coaching business has helped women all across the globe to ditch the booze and step into a full life of passion, purpose and alignment. And with that, I'd love to welcome Sarah onto the show. Sarah, welcome to Behind the Smile. How are you today?
1: I'm really well, thank you. Thank you so much
0: for having me. It's such a pleasure. I'm honoured that you've been able to join us. You're dialling in from the west coast of Australia in sunny Perth.
1: Yes, absolutely, where it really is very sunny today. I'm having to kind of start thinking about aircon and things like that already, which you don't expect to do in November, but there we go.
0: No, and then I was sharing with you before we started recording that we're having the opposite problem here in Melbourne, where I'm sitting here wrapped up in a blanket and Ugg boots, and it's meant to be summer
1: tomorrow. (laughs) I can't believe we're in the same country, it always astonishes me, the size of Australia.
0: Absolutely, it's so, so true. Look Sarah, before we jump into the photo that I've asked you to bring along today, I would love for our listeners to have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. So can we start off with you sharing where you're from, where you live now, what your average day looks like and what do you like to do for fun?
1: So I am from Manchester in the north of England. I moved to Perth in 2010. So I've been living over here for 12 years now and came here to escape the cold and the wet (laughs) um, of of the UK. So we've certainly um, struck gold with, with coming to Perth where the sunshine just seems to be constant. Um I have two kids who are 11 and 12 so my day involves getting them sorted as it does with most mums um and then being able to focus on my business and I work with as you said women mostly women some some men too um all over the world to help them to create and live um, a better life without alcohol so that involves Many, many hats um, coaching, which is my favorite, writing, which is my second mm-hmm. favorite, um, and then everything that comes with running a business, which is my least favorite in terms of accounting and admin and all the technical type stuff. Mm. But yeah, it's always a busy day juggling a lot of different things. There's always some exercise thrown in, there's always some yoga thrown in, and there's always some kind of connection with friends, which I would say for me, in terms of what do I do for fun. Um, I have been on such a journey of self-discovery since removing alcohol and fun for me is so different to what I thought it was. Like initially thinking fun involved a bottle of champagne in the pub um, with girlfriends with the whole afternoon stretching out ahead of you with not a, a... a time limit in sight because you could just keep on drinking. Um, now I actually couldn't think of anything worse. And so for me now, fun, it's um, its time with people I love. It's time in nature. It's trying new things. Um, You've probably seen on my feed, I'm a big fan of ice baths now and infrared saunas and doing all the, the new things and meeting new people. So I definitely think my life is more diverse and interesting than it ever that was. That sounds
0: amazing. That all sounds like a lot of fun. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's incredible how how large the shift in perspective is that we experience when we enter into this life of sobriety. And for me, I went from living what I now see was quite a small, narrow life to a life that's expansive and limitless, essentially.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Okay,
0: so let's take a look then at the photo you've brought in today. Sarah, I asked you to choose a photo from a time in your life where you were hiding behind a smile. So you were projecting one version of yourself to the world, but the reality was that you were really struggling on the inside. So can you describe for our listeners who can't see the photo right now, what is going on in the photo and also within your life at that time?
1: So in the photo I am proudly holding two jugs of alcohol (laughs) with the biggest smile on my face as I I can remember the photo being taken as I walked back from the bar with these two big jugs of I think it was Long Island iced tea or I always went for the cocktail that had the most number of spirits in it so that I could guarantee being the most drunk Mm. and I was walking back to the table and one of my friends like went smile and took a photo of me. Behind that smile, there was so much going on. Um, I was, I'd only been in Perth probably about 18 months at that point. I was lonely. I was homesick. I was looking after two kids under two. Um, I was trying to create a life for myself in a new city. And I didn't know how to do it without alcohol. Mm. But at the same time, alcohol was really starting to impact me and my drinking had started to change but I didn't know any other way and and I think we'll talk about that later on but in terms of that point in my life the emotions that I was feeling were so deeply uncomfortable I didn't know any other way to manage them than to drink Mm -hmm. and so I just drank and I drank and I drank and this was a picture of me out with some girlfriends drinking Mm. because that was what I did for fun. That's what I thought was fun.
0: And do you think that anybody around you knew at the time what was really going on for you?
1: Absolutely not. I don't think I really Mm. knew what was going on for me other than this deep desire for alcohol as often as possible. Mm. Mm.
0: It's often the case, isn't it? Alcohol, you know, essentially it disconnects us from self. So... Our ability to actually check in and know how we're really feeling is so limited when you're essentially using something to get you out of self and to not feel feelings, really. I know that's what what it was like for me. All right, so I'd love to take a step back now then. Can you tell me a little bit more about Sarah as a child, what your life looked like growing up?
1: And it's a huge one, really, because I think when you get sober and when you start doing some digging, you start to kind of reflect on things in such a different way. Absolutely. Right? Um, I grew up in Scotland um, and I was in a family where my parents were not terribly happy together, but they stayed together for the kids, as many parents did. And what that meant was that I was living in a house where there was constant conflict, constant tension. Um, on the surface to the outside world, we were the perfect family of four. There was a boy, there was a girl, there was a mum, there was a dad. We went on our nice little holidays. We had a nice house. You know, there was nothing to see here type thing. And behind closed doors, there was a lot of conflict. Um, and what I can see growing up, I, by the time I was 12, I'd been to five different schools. We had moved around quite a lot um, because of my dad's job. And I craved connection. Like Sarah, as a young girl, she just was never happier than when she had lots of people around her. Mm -hmm. And maybe that was looking back in some way reflective of what was happening at home with mum and dad and not having that true sense of safety at Mm -hmm. home. So feeling that sense of safety that I saw from being in big groups. And so I loved I'm such a girl's girl. I just had to surround myself with girlfriends all the time and even as as a younger girl. Um, And then when I was 13, we moved to um, Manchester from Scotland which was a really difficult age to move, to go from um, Scotland to England. I had a very strong Scottish accent and I moved to England and the Scots and the English hate each other. So it was kind of like, who's this Scottish girl coming into our school? Um, And it was really hard. Mm. And then at 14, I discovered alcohol. Mm. And at 14, then I discovered a way, first of all, to feel like I fitted in because that's what I loved about alcohol was that I could fast track feeling connected to people and close to people. You know when you've had a bottle of wine with someone and you're like, oh my God, you're my best friend. I love you. you. That was all I wanted. That was all I ever wanted was to feel connection, to feel love, to feel like people love me and I love them. And so what I loved about alcohol was it fast tracked that Mm. for me. So I could be sat with a group of girls who I didn't really know that well. And within an hour of drinking... We would love each other like they were my best friends and that was all I ever wanted. And so alcohol became for me something that created that sense of connection mm. that I was so deeply craving.
0: Do you remember the first time you tried alcohol?
1: No, I can't remember the first time. I remember the first time drinking on my own mm. without my parents. But I mean, I my dad was an alcoholic. I grew up, alcohol was very prevalent in my house growing up. Uh, My dad was not a bad drunk. He wasn't a violent drunk. He just drank a lot. And so, and I will remember as a little girl, seeing my mum and dad have an argument and seeing my dad go straight to the drinks cabinet and pouring himself a whiskey. Mm. And, you know, monkey see, monkey do, right? And so I remember the first time I had an argument with a boyfriend, First thing I did was go to the drinks cabinet and pour myself a whiskey. I can remember that burning sensation in my throat, but just going, well, that's what dad did. So that must be what works. Mm. Um, But prior to that, I definitely like from the age of probably six or seven was given like the froth off the top of my dad's pint of um, Guinness Mm. or bitter or Mm. whatever. I had a grandmother that lived in the south of France who was an alcoholic also. And so she would think nothing at the age of 10 or 11 of me having a small glass of wine with Mm. dinner. But like that was just kind of how it was. And then at like that kind of age 14, 15, we used to fill up bottles of Soda Stream with whatever we could find in the drinks cabinet, top it up with a little bit of Coke, go down the local park and just drink these disgusting concoctions yes. of like Cinzano and Southern Comfort and Malibu and Bacardi and vodka all mixed together and then you'd go and, like, snog the local boys from around the corner and then you'd go home and that was, like, our initiation into those older years, right? At age 14, 15. Oh is that just the UK no. or is that what it was like you, for you, you guys? You just told <laughs> my story. <laughs> To a T, I'm pretty sure I
0: remember doing the exact same thing with my girlfriends and the snogging and all of it. Yeah, it was was just what we did. Absolutely. So can you describe for me then what did your drinking look like as a teenager?
1: Um, It was heavy. It was consistent. It was something I looked forward to. Um, It never even occurred to me that I wouldn't drink. Like we had a house that was very sociable. We all mum and dad always having dinner parties, always having people over. It was very common to just, for there to just be lots of raucous laughter coming from the living room and drunk adults, but always with that fun mm. element, I just associated that alcohol meant fun and it meant connection. So of course, by the time I discovered it, I was like, well, yeah, of course I'm going to drink. And of course it's going to give me all the things that I want it to. Um, so through those teenage years, I drank a lot, Um, never on my own. Like, you know, it was a social thing. You kind of surround yourself with other people that drink in the same way. Um, This was an era where there was a lot of recreational drugs around at the time as well. So there was just a lot of hedonism. There was just, and I naturally gravitated to, I went to an all girls school. And you just, I think it's just the way it happens. You gravitate towards others that perhaps are having the same issues at home as you are. And so you create your kind of little bond. Like I remember there being three or four of us who were so close and so tight. And all of us either had separated parents or very unhappy parents. There was a lot of arguments at home. It wasn't a pleasant place to be. So we were just drawn together and we just went and partied and drank. And we were doing things that were well beyond Mm -hmm. our years. Um, But also this was a time where you were given a lot of freedom. You know, as a 16, 17 year old, my parents had no idea where I was. I was going out to pubs. I was taking fake ID. I was getting home at midnight. It was just very, very common. And then 18 in the UK, it's kind of a rite of passage. Everyone leaves home and goes straight to university in another town. So straight into. But of course, coming back to what I knew was how do you make friends? How do you fast track friendship? You get drunk with everyone and then everyone's your best friend. Mm. And so that was what I did. And so university is just three years of alcohol, drugs and a little bit of study Mm -hmm. Um, and then at 21 moved to London and got my first job in recruitment where the fourth interview, I had four stages of interview Ash and the fourth one was in a pub doing shots of Sambuca to see how well I could handle my booze.
0: (gasps) Oh my gosh.
1: There you go, that's the 1997 in London where um, you got your job based on your drinking ability.
0: Wow, I can't imagine that flying these days. No, not good,
1: But that was, um, and needless to say, I passed with flying colours. And so um, I was well-practiced at this. And so then you're kind of in London in your early 20s, earning money for the first time. Your role models are like Samantha from Sex in the City, who's drinking Cosmopolitans and sleeping her way around town. And you feel sophisticated and you think that you are living the high life and you are batching the boys pint for pint and drink for drink. And And so again, alcohol was everywhere, um but never in a way that seemed problematic because everyone was drinking. Mm. We would think of nothing of getting home at two AM and being back on the tube going back to work at seven AM. Mm. Like that was just two or three nights mm. a week. And know, God knows how we managed it. But you know, you'd have a bacon butty and a cup of tea and you'd be fine and ready to do it again the next mm-hmm. night. Um and so that was like the twenties as well. But again I don't really recall drinking on my own at that point. I drank socially but I just socialized a lot but on the nights that I was at home I was generally recovering and that was my night off and so that was the night I went to the gym and I had my kale smoothies and I I did all the things that made me think I had balance in my life
0: oh my gosh I'm I'm nodding away here just again so the similarities are blowing my mind but that's what we do isn't it to convince ourselves that we that what we're doing is normal And I think you touch on a really important point as well in that you surround yourself with people that do the same. So there's no reference point to think otherwise, which is really interesting. Absolutely.
1: If you ever say to someone, oh, I'm worried about my drinking, you drink the same as them. So their first response is, oh, you're fine. Don't be silly. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So you started working in recruitment in London. You're in your 20s. Did your drinking start to impact your productivity or your output or your career at that point?
1: I was about to say no then. But actually, I do recall my manager at the time saying to me, Sarah, you have got so much potential and you are doing so well in this business. But there's a really big red flag about your drinking. Mm. Not because my drinking was causing me not to perform, but because at all these work events, I would just make a complete dick of myself. Like I was always the one that was really drunk, that was either saying something really inappropriate or was kissing someone I really shouldn't have been kissing, or or you know, just those silly things that you do when you're drinking. And other people seemed to have an off button, but I just never did. And there was always a story about me on a Monday morning. And my manager was like you're brilliant at your job, you're brilliant at what you do, but we can't promote you to being a manager when every Monday morning, I don't know what story I'm going to hear about you. Mm. And I just remember being a bit like, but it's not affecting my job. I'm still doing really well. I'm the biggest biller in the company. I'm making you the most money. My productivity is still high. But of course, you, I wasn't a role model to to junior people coming into the business when I was rolling around drunk most weekends and, and most Friday drinks evenings. And I would always plan a client lunch for a Friday so that I could start at 12. So by the time it was the time for work drinks at half past five, I was absolutely smashed and they were only just having their first one and I was two bottles in. Mm. And so the secrets that I used to tell and and the things that, you know, anyway, we, we know what alcohol makes us do. And so that was definitely something not in terms of productivity, but in terms of my reputation. Yeah.
0: And so, then, when did alcohol start to become a problem? When did this progressive nature start to take hold for you?
1: So, I'd met my husband, and we got married, and he's from New Zealand, and we were trying to get pregnant. And turns out that when you're doing loads of drugs and drinking loads for trying to get pregnant, is um is quite difficult. Can be challenging. But even- <laughs> Right, but nobody even said to me, how much are you drinking? You know, like it, it just wasn't even coming up when I was talking to doctors or they, they maybe said you should cut down a little bit. Um, but it wasn't, I think nowadays, if you were trying to get pregnant, you everybody would kind of know, yeah, right, of course, you need to not be drinking and smoking. Um, but back then it kind of wasn't talked about as much. Um we did eventually get pregnant and through fertility treatment. And, um, and it wasn't even an issue for me not to drink. Like it, it, I was so desperate to be pregnant and that I, um, I embraced pregnancy and loved it. And then I had my son and my husband said, I don't want to stay in the UK anymore. Um, I want to bring up our son with the lifestyle that I had growing up of beach cricket and afternoon swims and outdoor lifestyle. I don't want him growing up in central London, where every run you go for, you're dodging the syringes in the local park. And, you know, it, it was a very different lifestyle. So we agreed to move to Australia and um, we decided Australia is kind of like a, a central place. It wasn't New Zealand. It wasn't the UK. We would start all over again, which in hindsight was stupid because who moves somewhere with a newborn baby where they've got no friends, no family, no support network mm-hmm. and, and thinks they're going to be okay. But I was just like, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. I've always made friends. So I'll be able to make friends absolutely fine. I'm an outgoing, friendly person. But the two weeks after we got landed in Perth, um, I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so then all of a sudden I was in a new city and the one way that I'd always had of making friends, which was drinking, i couldn't do mm, because I was pregnant of course so i didn't know how to what it was like to have friendships that formed slowly and normally and gradually in the way that friendships do. I was uh you are my best friend within ten minutes and and so how what do you mean you don't want my phone number and you're not inviting me out straight away like that, I remember it being so difficult. I remember talking to one of my friends in the u k and being like. I don't know what's wrong with me. Mm. Nobody seems to want to be my friend. But they did. They just were like taking it slow as normal people do. (laughs) Um, And so I then had two under two. And I had no friends, no family. My husband was out working all day. I missed my work. Like I, at this point, was still working in recruitment. I've become director of a, a very um, successful family-run business, and I was constantly—you know—my life had been weekends in Saint Tropez, and weekends in New York, and doing the high life, and and having disposable income, and being able to do what I wanted when I wanted. And all of a sudden, everything was different. Mm. I couldn't even go for a wee without a child coming <laughs> with me. Like it was kind of like everything in my life was upside down. I was spending days pureeing carrot and going to baby rhyme time and struggling with sleep and struggling with two very demanding little people Mm. and not even knowing who I was anymore. Mm. And alcohol then was like, hi, I'm here. You know, you feel better when you have me. And so I didn't need to be told twice that I deserved that glass of wine at the end of the day or that mummy wine juice was what I needed. Mm. And so I started drinking alone and I started looking forward to drinking. It was something that I wanted more and more. Mm. I I would never drink with the kids, but as soon as I would hear my husband's truck pull into the driveway, I would go outside with two screaming kids. I would hand them to him. And I would go inside, get my wine and go and sit in a little quiet corner in the garden and just drink. Just drink with the sole purpose of escapism. Mm. And that photo that was taken was around that time where I had found a group of friends and I was drinking now so I could make friends. <laughs> and um, and, I, and I, that, that connection was, was what I wanted and needed. Um, but I wasn't happy. I knew that there wasn't, that that something wasn't right within me. Um, And that was when the drinking, it wasn't something that I was doing socially anymore. It was something I was doing to escape myself. Mm. Mm.
0: It just makes me think it must have been such a confusing time to feel so isolated and lonely. But at the same time, you've got two children there. And whilst that would be so fulfilling and motherhood is such a beautiful experience for so many people, there's that real confusion there where there's that loss of identity, there's that loneliness and that disconnection.
1: Yeah. And no one really prepares you or talks about that in early motherhood of what it's like to to not be working anymore and not have complete independence anymore. And don't get me wrong, like I loved and still love being a mum, like... My kids are my proudest achievement, and I have such a strong relationship with them. But it was still a mourning and a grief for a life that you would never have again. Of just flippantly being able to go, "Oh, do you want to go out for dinner tonight?" Yeah, sure. Mm. Like you know, just this being able to have that that impulsivity and that independence, and um, and and I just missed as well that that sense of purpose each day, of that sense of achievement. I'm quite a driven person, quite type A. I need my list of jobs to do every day and I tick them off and it makes me feel good. And working in recruitment, there's a never-ending list of jobs to do. So it suited me so well. And I remember when I had William and I used to wake up in the morning and go, right, I've got to create a list. I'd be like, put washing in washing machine, (laughs) take washing out of washing machine, put washing online, just so I had a sense of achievement of getting my highlighter out and being able to go, I've done that and I've done that.
0: I'm exactly the same. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> love a list love marking a list off. Yeah. that's oh god yeah <laughs> so you went through this period of time where you started to drink alone in the garden and were you drinking to blackout at this stage or were you able to put the cap back on the bottle what did it look
1: like it was just a really slow gradual increase and that's the thing about alcohol mm. it's like people talk to me about what's gray area drinking and what's an alcoholic and I'm like but where's the where's the line of when someone goes from being a drinker to being an alcoholic? Like, it's so subtle and so insidious in the way that it starts to build up. And I never defined myself as an alcoholic, ever. But I had a problem with drinking. And so, and I was definitely addicted. Like, definitely. Like, addiction, when we crave something and we struggle to give it up. Yes. But, but society is so okay with certain addictions and not with others. It's okay to say I'm addicted to caffeine. That's absolutely mm. fine. But to say I'm addicted to alcohol, oh no, you terrible person. Shame on you for becoming addicted to that highly addictive substance. Mm. And so it I felt ashamed that I was drinking. I was hiding it. Um but I was also in denial and I also had very strong rules and I didn't drink on a Monday and Tuesday. And if I didn't drink on a Monday and Tuesday, I wasn't an alcoholic. <laughs> Um, although there was obviously a few Mondays where that did happen. And I remember on the Mondays that I did drink, my husband used to take the kids to cricket training on a Monday night. By this point, the kids were like four and six. And I remember I used to have this bottle that I hid behind all the other bottles of olive oil and coconut oil and everything in the pantry. There'd be a bottle of red wine because I couldn't ever keep white wine in the fridge because I would just drink it. And then my theory was, well, if it's warm, I won't drink it. But then I forgot about red and you can drink red at any temperature. So there was always red in the in the house somewhere. And I would keep this bottle hidden behind the olive oils and all of that. And I would pour it into a mug so that I didn't, I wasn't making a ritual of it. Mm. And I would drink it in the pantry so that it wasn't an occasion, but it was just something I was doing sneakily. And then I would pretend that I hadn't had anything when the kids got home when Gus got home. And so it was definitely building up into that kind of, drinking but still with rules and still and still high functioning, incredibly high functioning. I was still running half marathons. By this point, I had my own recruitment business and I was successful. I was making good money. But the problem is when you're working for yourself, of course, there's no boundaries. I was working from home. I didn't have to be anywhere. So I would get up, get the kids to school. And some days, depending on how bad the hangover was, I would either work or I would go back to bed and play Candy Crush all day. <laughs> and it's soul destroying. Mm. Like you, you know, like for someone who's very driven and very um passionate, to have a day on well, a beautiful hot sunny day where you can't even have the curtains open because that piercing sunlight is just too much, to have to lie in bed with all you can do is play Candy Crush or scroll Facebook, it just kills your soul. Mm. You know, and you and you hate yourself. Mm. And I would be like, I'm definitely not drinking today. Definitely not drinking today. But then by five o'clock it was there and before i knew it there was a glass in my hand and it just continued and then a bottle wasn't enough mm-hmm. and then sometimes i'd find myself opening the second bottle but it it got to the point where my sleep was so impacted mm-hmm. so then i started taking sleeping tablets every time i drank so that i didn't get the 3 a.m. wake up mm-hmm. and so you can imagine what it's like when you wake up in the morning having had a bottle of wine and a sleeping tablet oh. Yeah, you're definitely not showing up as the best version of you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And anxiety was getting worse. And I'm not an anxious person at all. And yet I was overthinking. I was worrying. I was wondering what people were thinking about me, what they were saying about me. I was often drinking and not being able to remember much the next day. And I went to my GP. I was like, I'm a mess. I'm a shell of myself. But at no point did she say to me, how much are you drinking? But then happily gave me a script for anti-anxiety meds. And there was just something in me that was like, that's not the answer here. You, you know enough, Sarah, to know that there's more going on here. Um, and while I didn't think everything was down to alcohol... I knew I needed to take a break. There'd been a couple of incidents. There'd been a a falling over and smashing my face. There'd been a a time when I couldn't take my son to his cricket match because I was still pissed at eight o'clock in the morning. Mm. And when you can't take your son to the thing he loves most in the world because his mum is still over the limit at eight in the morning, it was really an eye-opener for me. So I said, that's it, I'm going to do 21 days. I'm going to take three weeks off. Why 21 days? Oh, I think, I think I'd think i read that it's it, how long it takes to break a habit. Because to, to me, this was just a bad habit. Yeah. Like, you know, it was just a bad habit that just needed to be broken. I didn't have the information that I have now about addiction, about the neuroscience, about any of that. I was just like, oh, Sarah, you've got into a bad habit with your drinking. Maybe we'll just take a bit of a break. Um, so this was 2017, and there wasn't a huge amount of information out there like there is now. Um, so I took 21 days off. And I think I read the Annie Grace book, This Naked Mind. And I was like, wow, goodness, oh my goodness. And everything I was reading was just, I was fascinated by. And it got to the 21 days. I was like, no, I'm gonna keep going. I'm feeling really good. And so I did 100 days. And then I was like, oh, well, I can't not drink again. You know, like that would just be weird. So it's all okay. Now I'll be a moderate, normal Mm. drinker. And now I'll just drink every now and then like other people. And everything's fixed now. And so I drank. And the first time I remember being in a restaurant, I had one glass of wine. I was like, oh, look at me. (laughs) Look how grown up I am now. (laughs) I'm just fixed now. Look, I'm just a one glass kind of girl. Uh, Within two weeks, I was back to how I had been before. You do
0: hear that. I hear that story shared time and time again is that, Sometimes we can have a break, but when we do finally return, there'll be a period of maybe, as you said, a week or two, if we're lucky, where we'll convince ourselves that everything's fine because we're all of a sudden able to manage it again. But then it's, it's been shared with me that you then go back to exactly how it was, if not worse. And again, if that's worse. that progressive nature. Yeah, wow. So would you say that you had a specific rock bottom or was it more of those incidences that were compounding for you?
1: It was compounding incidents. The face planting one was definitely... I'd never injured myself before. And that was the first time that I'd caused a physical injury. Mm -hmm. Um, And I had gone outside at a 40th birthday party to put out a cigarette and I crouched down... And I toppled forwards, but because I didn't have any reflexes, I didn't put my hands out, so I just landed on a concrete driveway on my face. So blood everywhere, um, like the shame that I felt, I woke up the next, my friend took me home and put me to bed, and I woke up the next morning to my five-year-old daughter standing next to me going, Mummy, what happened to your face? Mm. And I just, you know, that sick feeling where suddenly you remember everything from the night before and you're just filled with such shame. And, and even that night, I can remember being hung over to hell, having like cuts and bruises. My lips were three times their size with just like bruises all over them. I couldn't even drink mm. out of a glass. So I drank wine through a straw. Wow. Because I didn't know any other way of how to make... The feelings go away. Mm. Mm. And that was a moment of going, the thing that caused this to happen, I'm still doing it the next day.
0: Yeah, just not that inability to let it go. What was your husband saying to you at this time?
1: So he he was a big drinker too. Mm. So we were each other's enablers. He had started to make comments along the lines of, you just need to rein it in a bit, Sarah. Like, you're just going too far. And for him to say that was quite a big thing because he never commented on my drinking. And that night, and I remember the shame of going to the chemist on Monday morning and asking the pharmacist, what does she have to help all the things on my face? And she surreptitiously handed me a card for domestic violence. Mm. And the way I felt in that moment was like my husband wouldn't hurt a fly. Mm. And how that made me feel in that moment of her thinking I'd been beaten up by my husband was just, yeah, that was a rock bottom.
0: Yeah. That would have been really tough.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, gosh. So tell me more then about the day you woke up and decided today
1: is the day I become a sober person for good. So I made the plan three months before it happened. Wow. So, no, two months before. So, with the, so after going back to drinking after 100 days, kept taking breaks, going back to drinking, two years of this constant merry-go-round cycle. And then one day saying, I'm going to do six months next time. I've never done six months. And telling my friend, who, who was now sober, a sober friend that i would made, sent her a message and I said, I'm going to do six months next time. Because that, you know, I'm going to set the date and that's it. Because I'm just drinking too much again. And she went, Sarah, why is six months going to be any different? Like, setting these time limits, you're still beholden to alcohol. You're still saying, my li- I'm going to go back to it. When you know that everything in your life is better when you don't drink. Mm. And I just, that moment when she said that to me, and I was just like, she's so right. And, um, and that was just the moment of going, everything is better when I don't drink. Mm. My life, my friendships, my relationships, my relationship with my kids, my energy, my mood, my emotions, my self-talk, everything was better every time I didn't drink. But yeah, I still kept going back to it. And then it was just that penny dropping moment of going, but well, what about if I don't go back to it? <laughs> like, and so I set the date and I said, I'm going to be done. I know that that's going to be it. And it was two months later, it was the 27th of April, 2019. And I set this date in February and I was, it was a friend's 40th. And I thought this is going to be my last hurrah. I had my hair and makeup done. I had a new outfit. I was like, I'm going out in style. This is my last night of boozing. I went home at 10 o'clock. I had two drinks. You're kidding me. I, I was just done. done. I was so ready. Mm. And I remember waking up the next day and going, welcome to the rest of your life, Sarah. Oh,
0: incredible. What were those first six weeks like for you? What did they look like? And did you have any sort of tools or techniques that you were implementing to
1: help support your sobriety? Because I'd done a couple of times before of doing 100 days, I knew what I was letting myself in for. So I was really well prepared. And I knew that what I had to do was number one, stay inspired. I'm a reader, I needed to have a, a whole five books ready to just work my way through. I needed to have podcasts for every single walk that I went on. I needed to have exercise as a focus, I needed to um, make sure that I still had friendships and connection with friends booked in, but in a way that wasn't focused around alcohol. Um, And for me, I also knew that I was going to not go down the sugar path, because I'd done that twice before. Mm. And I knew that when I lost, when I removed alcohol, that I would just be gorging on sugar. But I knew that that didn't make me feel good. So I had also made the decision, not that I'm going to remove sugar completely, But I made the decision. I think I may have even signed up to a challenge at the gym or just something. So my focus was exercise, eating really well, losing a couple of kilos and and just having that as my focus.
0: Mm, What a great idea. It sounds like you were really well supported in all facets. You make such a good point about when we put down alcohol, often we'll naturally pick up other things. It's just so common. I know that I've done everything you can imagine um, in my early sobriety. And I'm only now just, at you know, coming on to three years, learning to be able to actually just sit with my emotions and not need to use any of those external things to, to replace what alcohol used to do for me. What was going through your head when you were in that pre-contemplation? Like, what, Did you have any fears around giving up alcohol?
1: Honestly, no, because I'd done it. I had the evidence. Mm. I had the evidence that I couldn't moderate. And I had the evidence that I felt a million times better when I removed alcohol. So if anything, I felt excited. Mm. I felt excited for the next stage of my life. Mm.
0: Mm.
1: It really did feel like a, a rite of passage, kind of like, I have, I'm done. I can't moderate. I have tried for two years and I cannot do it. Mm. And so I don't need to put myself through that anymore.
0: And for somebody who drinks like you or I used to drink, you know, moderation just is torture. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And why do you think complete abstinence is the much easier pathway compared to moderation?
1: I never drank to enjoy the taste of a fine wine with my steak or, or, I mean, I may have said that I did, (laughs) but mostly I drank to get drunk, right? And so... To get a taster, but not be able to go the whole way, that was just absolute torture for Mm. me. Um, And what I now also know is when we, the the neurological impact of having alcohol come into our brain and the mess up of, of the neurotransmitters and how imbalanced they make us. So when we drink alcohol we get a sudden surge of GABA. So GABA is the neurotransmitter that makes us feel calm and relaxed. So that's why it's a depressant, right? So that's why in that moment you go, ah, oh, and you know, you just, all your problems seem to melt away, which is why we drink, right? Because in the short term, it does what we want it to do. Mm. That lasts about 20 minutes. Because our beautiful brain hates the, the lack of homeostasis, what it does is it releases loads of cortisol, the stress hormone to counter the impact of the big um, hit of GABA. So once the alcohol's worn off, all we're left is a feeling of excess cortisol, which makes us feel a bit edgy, a bit stressed, a bit anxious. And so then we crave another drink to get rid of the impact that the first drink has caused. Mm. So for me, after one glass, I would feel really antsy after it had worn off. Mm. Really antsy. Like to me, going out for a lunchtime drinks and having to stop, that was my idea of hell. Mm -hmm. Because the way I would feel for the rest of the afternoon... Would be on edge just not quite myself just not right in my own skin and i just wanted to keep drinking mm. and now i know why that is with that neurological impact of what happens to our neurotransmitters so when we don't mess up that homeostasis balance of neurotransmitters we're not fighting against anything so now understanding all of this helps me to go so that's why one or two was never really an option for me mm.
0: I love the way you've explained that so clearly. And it's also a contributing factor to why alcohol causes anxiety. And when I started to realize that, because I developed chronic anxiety towards the end of my drinking, particularly in the last two years, which is no surprise, that's when I was a daily drinker. And I was on antidepressants to try and medicate the anxiety, which I later learned. Essentially, they were just being neutralized by the alcohol, but it was this vicious cycle of I would drink because I felt anxious, but then the drinking made me feel anxious. And until you break that cycle, you can't escape from that loop.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's the biggest myth about alcohol is that it relaxes us Mm. because it does for 20 minutes, Mm. but then it leaves us feeling more stressed and anxious. And with my clients, the number one thing that they notice is how quickly their um, anxiety um, decreases. Mm,
0: absolutely, and sleep as well. I know that for me, the the way I sleep now compared to when I used to drink, and you mentioned those three a.m. wake ups. You know, there's just so much evidence in how our well being is significantly improved, correlated to the quality of sleep that we get. And again, alcohol inhibits that ability to get a full night's rest.
1: Exactly exactly so
0: tell me how has your life changed since you got sober
1: so the first year I was still working in recruitment um but another reason that I think I've been drinking so much was because I was so unfulfilled in my job I'd done it for 24 years I was kind of like I'm done from doing this all the time um but it was great on paper. I had flexible hours, I worked for myself, I made great money um, and I could come and go as I pleased. And so to most people looking at that, you'd be like, well, what are you moaning about? That's like, that's the dream. But for me, it was just killing my soul inside. I didn't feel fulfilled or on purpose with it whatsoever. And i would always had an interest in coaching. I mean, recruitment is very much career coaching. And I was like, well, what about if I was to flip that to do health coaching? Uh, because I've been on this journey myself of, you know, becoming more interested in health and well-being and, 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 but I was very resistant to it being alcohol related. So 2020 happened, COVID happened, and it kind of made the decision for me because my recruitment business had gone on hold because I was doing legal recruitment at the time and no law firms were hiring. Everyone was kind of, you know, not knowing what the future held from a COVID standpoint. So I had no work to do. So I said, like, well, I might as well retrain. So I did my health and wellness um, qualification in 2020 while still doing an incredible amount of work on myself. I was seeing a therapist weekly. I was digging out some of the stuff from my past that had kind of got me to that point. I was starting to become so much more self-aware, so much more self-connected. And, um, and then at the end of 2020, my t- um, teacher said to me, so, so what's your focus going to be? You've you've qualified now, you've passed with like absolute distinction in health and wellness coaching, but you need to niche. What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know whether to do the alcohol. Um, And then I was like, but that's my story. And that's what I'm so passionate about. And that's what I love helping others with. And so I launched the business um, and got my I then went on to study and get my gray area drinking qualification um, so that I because what I focus on with my clients is. If you're taking alcohol out, what are you adding in? Because you can't just take alcohol out and carry on living exactly the same life that you had Mm -hmm. without having something that you add in, whether that be from a nervous system regulation perspective, if you're drinking for stress and anxiety, whether that be from creating more fulfillment if you're drinking because you're bored and lonely, whether that be like whatever the reasons are, when we identify what the reasons are, we then need to look at what we're we're using instead of alcohol. Mm. And so it then coincided, um, March 21, Mamma Mia interviewed me and they ran an article sharing my story. 8,000 women reached out to me after reading that story. Wow. And what that did was show me there are so many women out there who are struggling in the way that I have been struggling. They don't identify as being alcoholics. But their drinking is slowly but surely increasing. It's really starting to impact their mental well-being, their physical health. They aren't telling anyone about it. They're filled with shame, remorse and regret. And so I created my community, um, a free Facebook community that's now got um, 13,000 women in it from all over the world. And I started coaching and I run alcohol-free programs. And most of the work I do, I don't do one-to-one. I do have some one-to-one clients, but most of it I do in groups because the opposite of addiction is connection. Mm -hmm. And when we are going on that journey, you know, they say that you are the sum of the five people you spend the most time with. If you are spending all of your time still with people who are drinking all the time, Mm -hmm. it's really hard. If you are in a group with others who are all doing this at the same time, you feed off each other, you inspire each other, you share with each Mm. other. And I'm so much about people getting that support and connection with others as well as me. Mm.
0: It's So, so important, isn't it? So can you define what grey area drinking is for those who maybe haven't heard the term before?
1: So if you think about someone's drinking as being on a scale of one to ten. So one is someone who either doesn't drink or maybe they have a glass of champagne at a wedding to toast the the bride and groom. And other than that, alcohol just doesn't feature. Ten is an end stage, physically dependent alcoholic. And what I mean by that is someone who needs to have medical support to stop drinking. Otherwise they could die because it's really important to mention here that there are only three substances in the world that the human body can die from withdrawal from and alcohol is one of them. Mm. One of the others is illegal and the other one you can only get given from a healthcare practitioner in certain amounts you know very very closely monitored amounts at any one Mm -hmm. time and yet alcohol is available to all of us everywhere and and encouraged that we Mm -hmm. have so you've got one in ten someone that needs medical support to stop drinking and someone who never drinks to me the gray area is about a four to an eight we're not using alcohol or we're using alcohol as something other than just something we do to have a nice glass of wine with our meal. Mm. It's become something that we're becoming dependent on because that person who's a 10, they don't wake up a 10. They go, they move through the scale. And that's why we can't use the term alcoholic and social drinker anymore because it's a scale in the UK. They use the term alcohol use disorder Mm. in the States. They're starting to use gray area drinking more. Um, which again is a term that's just becoming more openly talked about where you've got a dysfunction in some way with alcohol, but you're not needing and wanting to drink every single day, which is what we consider an alcoholic to be.
0: And do you think that the solution for somebody who identifies as a gray area drinker is abstinence? Or do you think that there can be a world where they drink on
1: occasion? I think it depends on the reasons and where you are at. Some people are drinking situationally. So they've had an incredibly difficult event and they haven't known how to process that and they have needed and wanted escape from it and they have drank significantly through that time and maybe then have developed a problematic relationship with alcohol and carried on. But when you deal with the heart of the problem and you take a significant break from alcohol perhaps they could go back to being a moderate drinker. But I would say the majority of people can't. Mm. I think one, there's a line, and, and I remember listening to someone talk about this. When you've passed the point of being a take it or leave it drinker, so when you've passed that point of being someone that's just like, oh yeah, I don't really mind if I drink tonight or not. I'm happy to drive if you want to drink. I was never that person, by the way. I was never the driver. No, and so neither. when you, when you have passed the line of being a take it or leave it drinker, then you're never going to go back to being a take-it-or-leave-it drinker. The scale doesn't go down in the same way that it goes up. So I say to everyone, give yourself the opportunity of taking a break. Mm. Take a decent amount of time off alcohol and then see how you feel. Because most people don't know what their life is like without alcohol because it's been prevalent in their life since they were 14, 15 years Mm. old. And it's inconceivable for them to even think about what three months off alcohol might be like. Mm. But what's three months in your one long, amazing, precious life, mm. you know, when you start to get it into context? And what if you discover stuff about yourself or a different way to be that you wouldn't know if you carried on drinking? Mm.
0: Mm. Absolutely. Now, I hear a lot of people say it's quite a common phrase in Australia is, you know, I need a drink or I, I need a drink to unwind. Uh, And as you mentioned, alcohol is a depressant that actually increases anxiety. So if we're working off your model of um, implementing things, once we've replaced the alcohol or removed the alcohol, I should say, what are some tips that you might have for people who want to de-stress without using alcohol?
1: Yeah. And that's that's a great point. And That's the part of my job that I love the most is is doing this kind of work with my clients. So the first thing I do is a neurotransmitter assessment to see if they are deficient in GABA. Um, I test for four different neurotransmitters, GABA, serotonin, dopamine, and acetylcholine. And depending on where they are on that scale, and if they're deficient in, then we can look at certain supplements, nutrition, and lifestyle activities that start to build GABA naturally. Mm. I'd say 80% of the women I work with are deficient in GABA. And that's why we're turning to alcohol because GABA is the body's natural way of feeling calm. So if we're not producing enough of that ourselves, we're going to turn to something externally to do it for us. So with number one place I start is let's start rebuilding your GABA. Second thing is let's start regulating your nervous system. So let's start looking at what are the things for you that start to bring you down because it's different for everyone. One client loves journaling. Another can't bear to put pen to paper, but loves listening to calming music while going for a walk. Another client uses essential oils, and she finds the sense of the um, sense of smell so incredibly powerful. Another client has um, started, you know, running all the time. Like it, it's about trial and error, and this is the exciting, fun bit where you get to experiment with well, what works for me. Mm. In the early days of sobriety, for me. Every single night at five o'clock, I had a bath. Mm. I'm I'm a Pisces. I'm such a water girl. I'm drawn to water. Water instantly calms me. So I had to be out of the kitchen. So I had a bath every night at five o'clock and that's what worked for me. Other people are like, oh my God, you lie in dirty water. That's disgusting. I can't have a bath, but they will go and do a meditation on the bed or they'll go, you know, it's it's all about discovering what works for you. But most of us don't even know because we're so disconnected to ourselves Mm. that we wouldn't even know what works for us.
0: Mm. I'm a huge fan of baths and I love the idea of doing one every day at 5 p.m. That's a great suggestion, Sarah. Yes, (laughs) Okay. So we've just ticked over into December, which for a lot of people marks the beginning of the silly season. And it can be a really challenging time for someone if they're either trying to give up alcohol or maybe they're early on in their sobriety journey. So what tips can you share with us for staying sober over this period?
1: I think it's really important that we're very selective with what we do. We, we There's a general kind of propensity to just say yes to everything and there's all these invites and all these people that suddenly want to catch up that you don't even really like that much and can't be bothered spending time with but because it's Christmas we must catch up Mm. so just get really clear on who you want to spend time with and what you want to do Mm. and make sure that you have not got a diary ahead of you that is involving five nights in a row out doing something um, because that's going to leave you feeling stressed and exhausted. So number one is really ask yourself, do I really want to do this? Mm. If it's not a hell yes, then it's a hell no. Mm. Second thing is consider yourself as having a bucket, and your bucket is your 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 energy levels. And every time you do something or, or get or expel a certain amount of energy, we need to find ways that replenish it. So what are you doing in your day or in your week? that really kind of starts to replenish that bucket for you? Is it having an afternoon to yourself? Is it a walk on the beach? Is it seeing a certain friend that really fills your cup and makes you feel great? Is it having absolute solitude for a day and not speaking to anyone and completely being able to just read a book and be on your own? Like, know what fills your bucket back up. Because at this time of year, our bucket gets empty. And we're very rarely doing enough to keep filling it up. And then when we're tired, exhausted, stressed, and overwhelmed, alcohol feels like a really quick fix. Third thing, alcohol-free drinks. They're not for everyone, but for me, keep the ritual, change the ingredient. Mm. If an alcohol-free drink at five o'clock on a Friday and a nice champagne glass works for you, do it. Mm. Um, I don't drink them that much, but if I'm going to a social occasion, I'll take a nice bottle of alcohol-free champagne with me. Um, I I enjoy the taste of it. Pretty sick of water sometimes. And so, you know, it's it's nice to have a few different options. Um, and then just make sure that you are staying inspired. So staying, you know, if you're on social media, on Instagram, following your favourite sober people, joining communities like mine or any of the other amazing ones out there, listening to the podcast, reading the books, like staying focused because that's what, when we get complacent is when we slip up. Mm. So staying and the way that we stay focused is by continually staying inspired.
0: That's absolutely right. I was sharing on this recently, you know, preparation is key preparation prevents piss poor performance I learned once upon a time in a previous life and it's so so true if you can go in with a game plan you're just so much more supported especially you know if you do if a trigger does come up that you're not expecting or somebody offers you a drink you know just having those tools in your toolkit to better prepare you so thank you for sharing those Sarah that's really helpful for our audience. Now I'd love to know what the future holds i know that there's some exciting things on the way for you can you share any of those with us today
1: so i've just run my first corporate alcohol free program for a huge mining company here in western australia um they you know i would love to get into more corporates like so many corporates out there are waxing lyrical about oh we support our employees with mental health and yet every social event they do is in the pub and there's no alcohol-free drink alternatives and no one's really talking about the impact that alcohol has on sleep and mental health. So getting into corporates um, and getting into schools Mm. because I didn't have the education and I'm not about going into the schools and going, oh, you must never drink alcohol. That's not what it's about. It's about education and it's about going, this is what happens when you drink alcohol. Mm. So this is why you might feel anxious the next day. And this is why you might do or say things that you later regret. And no one gave me that education. No one told me what alcohol was doing to me. And so we suffer in silence. Whereas if that information is, is you know, if we've got that available to us from a young age, we can make informed decisions. So those are two passion projects of mine. Um, I'm going to launch a podcast, um, which is more around what happens after we've removed alcohol Mm. so how do we go on this journey of deep self-discovery and self-connection um and a book is in the making which um again is another book that is very focused on the tools that help support with a little bit of, of memoirs and journeys and some case studies in there as well
0: incredible what a year you're going to have next year that's so so exciting and all so well deserved Sarah I'm really really happy for you Thank you. There's one question that I love to finish off with when I have guests on the show. And that question is, what are your three non-negotiables that allow you to live a life that is happy, joyous and free in recovery?
1: Movement. So some kind of movement and exercise every single day is an absolute non-negotiable for me. Connection. And I mean... Deep, authentic connection. I don't know about you, Ash, but since I've got sober, I'm just not interested in superficial, mm. light kind of talk. I love going deep. I love those authentic talks and, and really kind of knowing someone and seeing someone. And I, whether it's with my kids or my husband or my friends, like some kind of connection is so important to me. And sleep. Mm. Like I have learned so much about myself. and um, When I don't sleep, everything else doesn't work. And so prioritizing sleep, having a really good sleep routine and knowing how important that is, is an absolute foundational piece for me. Mm,
0: I couldn't agree more. All super, super important points. Now, Sarah, if our audience wants to find you, where can they
1: go? So I'm hanging out on Instagram a fair bit now. So that's just at Sarah Ruspatch, my free Facebook community, um, the women's well-being collective and my website sarahrusbatch.com
0: amazing thank you so much sarah we say here on behind the smile that when we recover loudly no one needs suffer in silence so thank you so so much for being here today for sharing your story so honestly with so much vulnerability and for all the incredible work that you do
1: within the sober space Thank you so much for having me, I love the work that you're doing and I just love that you have a platform that allows others to know that they're not alone.